0: Welcome back to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and today I'm joined by Leora Halperin to talk about her book, The Oldest Guard, Forging the Zionist Settler Past, and the broader issues it raises about the history of Zionist settlement in Israel and Palestine, historical memory at large, and why it all matters. Leora R. Halperin is Associate Professor of International Studies and History and Distinguished Endowed Chair in Jewish Studies at the University of Washington in Seattle. The Oldest Guard is her latest book published in 2021, and she is also the author of Babel in Zion, Jews, Nationalism, and Language Diversity in Palestine, 1920-1948. to 1948. I'm so glad to be able to share this conversation with Leora that really dives into the history and memory of the early Zionist movement and the ways it has shaped the discourse and debates over more than a century. I should mention also that I've posted a link in the show notes to an excerpt. Thanks so much for listening. Hi, Leora. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Jason.
0: It really is a pleasure to have you here. Obviously, your book is really wonderful, and there's so much to say about it, but I've really enjoyed having friends and colleagues on the podcast just to talk about what people have been doing and what's so exciting about the new research in the field and why it matters. It might be useful for us to start out our conversation about your new book with the title, and I know that, that oftentimes titles are not necessarily the creation of the author, right? You know, It's done in collaboration with the press and so on and so forth. But I think that the title of your book is really wonderful. It's a really great double entendre, the oldest guard, right? So it refers on the one hand to the old guard as it were, but also to the literal oldest guard, right? This figure of Avraham Shapira. Can you maybe get us started off with who is this figure, Avraham Shapira, this oldest guard? Who's also a member of the old guard, I guess, at the same time. And what does his story tell us about the first Aliyah in Ottoman Palestine in the nineteenth century and its place in Zionist and Israeli history and historical memory?
1: Yeah. So Avraham Shapira was a legendary guardsman in Tikva, which was a Jewish agricultural colony that was founded well, it was founded for the first time in eighteen seventy-eight actually by Jerusalemite Ashkenazi Jews, so not new immigrants. Abraham Shapira had been born in the Southern Russian Empire, actually part of what's now Ukraine. And he came to Palestine in 1880 with his family. And in 1883, he moved to Tikva, which had been founded, as I mentioned, in 1878. And then it failed agriculturally and then was refounded in 1883. So Avraham Shapira arrived not with the very first group, but kind of at the beginning of its reestablishment. And by 1890, it seems he had become the head guardsman. He lived until the age of 95. He lived until 1965. Uh, so 1870 to 1965 are his years, which means that he lived the majority of his life in Ptukh Tikva over periods of Ottoman rule, and then British Mandate rule, and then Israeli rule, both as a personality, he tracked through the entire period that my book covered. Um, And his role as a guardsman made him into a kind of local legend and local hero. And this was particularly true come the British Mandate period after World War One. By this point, he's already in his middle age, And he starts to be presented and also actively present himself as a figure who represented the early settlement past, Uh, in particular, the kind of Jewish guarding duties that he uh, partook of and in fact, continued to partake in during the mandate period. So he was a defender, he was a person who spoke Arabic and could speak with and uh, negotiate with uh, local, rural Palestinians. And all of these features and factors, right, his, his long standing presence in this Jewish colony, his role as a defender, uh, also sort of his folksy, really uneducated background, made him into something of a hero, but also a fascination, and also in some cases, the butt of a joke locally, right? He was a beloved, grandfather figure, also a hero, but a hero who was now in middle-aged or old age who could be appreciated, celebrated, and also ridiculed. And so he represented some of the complexities of the treatment of this period of settlement that after World War I became known as the first Aliyah. And that's the second sense of of the word. So the first sense of the word is Avraham Shapira's nickname which was Zikan Hashomrim, which basically means the oldest of the guards. Um, And the second meaning, as you mentioned, is the old guard. Um, So this group of Jewish settlers, the founders of these private Jewish agricultural colonies, after World War I came to be presented in the dominant Zionist memory uh, controlled by labor Zionist uh, factions as ineffective, Socially reactionary, diasporic in its cultural and social mores, uh, something that perhaps had laid the foundation for what would come later, but not a period of time or a group of people who should be, for the most part, celebrated in their own right. So, this kind of both celebration of what became regarded as a founding past, but also the ridiculing or even denigration of aspects of that past became the tension that. Defined historical memory around the First Aliyah, come the British Mandate period, and into the Israeli state period.
0: Yeah, what you've laid out here is a really uh, phenomenally interesting story of, on the one hand, an individual who stands in for the wider phenomenon of how people engage with the past, Um, and also, as I think we'll get into, this question of firstness—who who was there first? What is this distinction that can be made between different eras, different time periods, and what this all represents? But I think that it might be useful for us to, to think a little bit more here about the context, right? You mentioned briefly how uh, Shapira is a figure that really spans the entire history of the Zionist movement up until the founding of the state and in the early years of statehood as well. I think there's a wider context here that might be useful to think about, right? When you're talking about Shapira as being part of the first Aliyah, you know, what is this exactly? And, and especially as we try to take it out of the rhetoric. Which you just mentioned, which is that later Zionist leaders of the so-called Second Aliyah, you know, in the early 1900s, they tried to differentiate themselves from the older groups, the earlier groups, uh, and to say that they would be, as you mentioned, more effective, and so on and so forth. So, as we try to sort of extract ourselves from that political rhetoric, right, of the 20th century, what actually was the first Aliyah, and what is the context of figures like Shapira and his colleagues and and peers? who came to Ottoman Palestine at this time?
1: Yeah, and it's a really tricky question. I think the most important takeaway point is that the first Aliyah is a retrospective historical construction, right? If you had been in Palestine in the 1880s or 1890s, it wouldn't have been immediately obvious that there was a phenomenon afoot. Um, There were small in very small beginning in the dozens and then in the hundreds of individuals, some of them from the existing religious Jewish communities, and some of them immigrants mainly from uh, the Russian Empire who were engaging in rural agricultural experiments, right? And they were influenced by Haskalah. Jewish Enlightenment-related discourses that imagined that Jews needed to become self-sufficient, right, not economically dependent on others. They needed to prove themselves as capable of undertaking agriculture, uh, becoming connected to the land. And so in very small numbers and on a very small scale, both Jewish individuals and also some small uh, groups of people or settlement or colonization societies engaged in land deals, purchased small plots of land. Petah Tikva was one of those, uh, and began these agricultural experiments. But these individuals were coming amidst a wave of Jewish immigration to Palestine, really a very small wave of immigration from. Again, Eastern European origins, also the Middle East and North Africa, that was overwhelmingly settling in Palestine's urban centers and traditional Jewish communities. So if you look at the full population of Jewish immigrants in that later part of the 19th century, we're only talking about 20,000 or so people, and they would overwhelmingly move to Jerusalem, to Safed or Tzfat. Tiberius and Hebron. In fact, the Jewish communities in those cities grew considerably during this late 19th century period, right? But this very small number, approximately 5,000 or so, did end up moving into rural agriculture by the time you get to the year 1900. And what distinguished them uh, in the minds of those who came later was really the fact that they purchased lands using private funds. right they were private landowners, and that might seem unremarkable for those of us, for example, in the u s where essentially anyone who's a landowner, a landlord is a private landowner. But come the beginning of the twentieth century, the Zionist organization, which was founded only in eighteen ninety seven so decade and a half after the beginnings of these agricultural experiments, founds a fund um, known as the Jewish National Fund to start purchasing land in Palestine in the name of the Jewish people as a collective, right? So there wouldn't be a single person uh, who owned that land, but rather this fund or this organization would own the land on behalf of the Jewish people. And increasingly in the 20th century, uh, lands owned by the JNF became the settings in which new agricultural colonization would happen. And what you referred to, Jason, as the second aliyah, these labor Zionist um, affiliates, were individuals who came for the most part without resources of their own. They were able to establish the communities that they did in the early 20th century, thanks to the fact that this much broader Zionist movement was starting to engage in land purchases. So in retrospect, the first elia emerged both as a period of time and really defined in practice as the period of time before these JNF land purchase enterprises, uh, but also defined by the groups of people associated with those communities and specifically with those who purchase land using private funds, um, and continued to operate outside of the institutional space of the Zionist movement. And the important thing that makes the First Aliyah such a messy category is that even as those land purchases through the JNF were starting to ramp up, private buyers continued to purchase lands using private funds. So even with what came to be known as the second Elia associated with socialist ideas and settlement on these JNF or nationally owned lands, you still had private landowners in the 1900s, the 1910s, the 1920s and onwards who continued to purchase land, continued to establish agricultural um, communities. They weren't known as the first Elia because the periodization and chronology cut off the story at the moment that this new model emerged. But in many ways, culturally, and especially in the memory or collective memory landscape, this broader community of private farmers particularly look to the first Aliyah as the beginning of their story. And labor Zionists later on particularly looked to the first Aliyah and private colonization as the antithesis, Of what they were trying to build so you can start to see how these different patterns some of which were much larger institutionally than these particular settlers ended up shaping the kind of uh, historical periodization that would become dominant
0: yeah i mean i think it's not just a question of periodization though i want to come back to that in just a second i think that your emphasis here on the question of private versus public land ownership is really significant you know, it's something I've thought quite a bit about in terms of thinking about the history of, of Jewish settlement in Palestine, you know, Ottoman Palestine, and it's not like private land ownership goes away with the rise of uh, socialist Zionism. In a certain sense, I think that you only really do see the explosion of communal land purchasing in the 20s, right? You know, with under Chaim Weizmann, the formation of the KKL, you know, for instance, and the entire notion of what they would call national capital, you know this kind of idea of, of putting together capital to purchase land for the national project, as opposed to for an individual or for an individual settlement. I think there's a lot to say here about the ongoing tension that there has been between the public and the private. Here, uh, it's not just a question of historical memory, you know, but where you know you see in many ways, for instance, I, I just mentioned uh, Hein Weizmann, but like the tension between Hein Weizmann and Louis Brandeis, right, in the 1920s, is, is, is very much about this as well, about what kind of land purchasing should be done and what kind of land purchasing could be done, right? You know, I often emphasize uh, when I'm talking about this with my students that the entire Jewish settlement project and the land purchasing in Palestine was enabled by the Ottoman reforms of the 1850s that changed how land ownership worked in the first place. So can you maybe comment a little bit here about why these questions of public and private land ownership and Structures are so important, not just for understanding the historical memory, but also for understanding the broader process of Jewish settlements in Ottoman and later British Palestine.
1: Yeah. So, as you mentioned, the Ottoman Empire, beginning in the 1830s, underwent or undertook a a series of reforms of multiple legal and governmental institutions that were intended to reboot the Ottoman economy by encouraging. Uh, private investment and also by centralizing and making more efficient the process of tax collection. So the key legislation is the 1872 land reform, which consolidated the process of tax collection in such a way that smaller landowners found themselves incentivized to sell their lands to larger landowners who could afford to pay the taxes under the new regime. And so you start to see in the 1870s, and again, right, you can see how these timelines line up, private landowners who are controlling lands, in some cases, many miles away from the cities where they lived, choosing to sell those lands, either when they fell into debt, or because there was now this new demand from Private Jewish and Zionist purchasing agencies who were willing to offer them good amounts of money and they decided this was worthwhile for them and so on that level, the fact of who the buyer was was sort of less significant right both the the public quote unquote the jNF which is also the KKL buyers were um, benefiting but you start to see just this proliferation of efforts at land settlement. And they really ramp up in 1908 with the establishment of the Palestine office of the uh, Zionist organization. And so you have um, really the idea that settlement and rural settlement in particular would be the mechanism through which the Zionist movement would achieve its various political and cultural objectives. Only ramps up. So, in a sense, the the private landowners and the public landowners are all contributing to what becomes a central plank of of Zionism, which is the acquisition of land, the settlement of Jews on that land, the cultivation of that land, and the holding on to that land, right, against legal challenges, against outbreaks of violence, etc. So, this becomes really central to the Zionist story writ large. But within, as you note, there are these debates about what is the right mechanism for um, engaging in that land settlement. And it's also wrapped up with debates about labor, which is not only the question of how the land should be held and owned, but what kind of labor should take place on that land. So another feature that comes to be associated with the first Aliyah colonies, i.e. these private founded and owned Jewish colonies established in the late 19th century, is that they hired local Palestinian labor to do most of their menial agricultural work. Although they did hire Jewish laborers in some cases, especially for for more skilled uh, labor jobs. One of the main criticisms, really the central criticism that labor Zionist organizations alleged against the private colonists was that they were not contributing to creating jobs for new Jewish immigrants. Right? By hiring these local workers who conveniently commanded a lower wage, they were effectively leaving new poor Jewish immigrants in the dust. So you can imagine this is a kind of populist rhetoric that Today in the U.S., we associate with the political right at that time associated with the with the political left saying, hey, we have this ethnic group of poor workers who need jobs. And these others, right, these people outside of our national project are taking the work from our people who need jobs. And you guys, the owners, are just in it for the profit. Um, You don't care about our people, our national project. And they tried to put pressure on those owners to hire Jewish labor. And they called this Hebrew labor, right? The the fight for Hebrew labor became a major calling card of the various labor Zionist movements.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say about that. I want to keep our focus on the first Aliyah for a moment and think about why this question of periodization is important, right? I think that in a certain sense, the issue of how historians divide up phenomenon or, or various issues into different time periods like it might kind of seem like a kind of a pedantic exercise. The history of the Zionist movement begin in 1897. Does it begin earlier, right? You know, this is, uh, I think, an important kind of scholarly issue, but it's important for us to also think about why this is so significant, right? So why does it matter to talk about dividing up the history of Zionism into a series of waves of immigration and settlement? You know, as we've talked about, part of the story here is that this division of time where this periodization is inherently part of the debate about historical memory. But like, can you maybe expand a bit here about why it's so important, this process of dividing up Zionist history into First Aliyah, Second, Third, Fourth, Fifth, and so on and so forth?
1: Yeah. So this periodization, which continues to be used by scholars, often in a very just reflexive way, um, as though it just is the story had a number of functions within Zionist thought, and particularly Zionist thought within Palestine and Israel as differentiated from Zionist thought abroad. So what that periodization does is it intrinsically push it puts settlement of Palestine at the heart of the Zionist story, even as most Zionists around the world and even leaders of the Zionist movement were not in Palestine. And some of them had no intention of moving. So Zionism was not only a movement, and originally it wasn't at all a movement located in Palestine. So it was a way to shift the story from a story of a European Jewish um, musculic political process to a story about establishing a foothold in Palestine. And so crediting these newcomers with being part of this settlement process is one of the effects of this periodization scheme. Another effect of this scheme or another outcome is that it functions to differentiate these different phases on the basis of several different factors. So for the first aliyah, second aliyah distinction, it's really this division over, over private versus national land ownership. But it also became a distinction about labor practices, as I mentioned about social mores, religiosity versus secularism. So all these terms become not only a way of breaking down time, but also a shorthand for thinking about different groups of people. Later, Aliot, third, fourth, fifth would become particularly marked by the uh, national origins, and by national, I mean European national origins of different groups. So these are these are shorthands that create both a continuity of settlement, right, wave after wave after wave, but also ideologically differentiate between groups of people on the basis of various factors, economic, social, or linguistic, that seem salient for the politics of any given moment.
0: Yeah. I mean I think one other thing that that's that this framework does is that it centers the process of immigration to Palestine, later Israel, at the center of the story. And it leaves out the people who left from the territory and went back to their homes.
1: And this is something that I certainly note, is that of the folks who become marked or numbered with the first Elia, the estimates are that over half of them left. Um, And they went either back to their Eastern European origins or some of them moved to the United States. This is the period of the largest flow of Ashkenazi and also, in fact, Ottoman immigration to the United States. And so the American Jewish history column, just as yet another Ashkenazi Jew um, among the 2 million who who end up coming, but whose journey actually took them through Palestine.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, part of what you have uh, pointed towards here is the numbers of people who are involved in the first Aliyah, if we'll use the term, is fairly small, both in comparison to later immigration, to Palestine and Israel, but also the fact that many people who did go to Ottoman Palestine left, right? So when we think about the somewhat insignificant size of this group of people in relative terms, you know, why does the first Aliyah matter when we're thinking about the wider context of Jewish settlement in Palestine in the 19th and 20th centuries uh, and the broader history of Zionism? The first Aliyah became overshadowed by the political leaders of the second Aliyah, right? David Ben-Gurion and so many others, right? So why does the first Aliyah matter?
1: Yeah. So the first Aliyah is right at the precipice or the cusp of mattering and not mattering. And that's partly why I find it so interesting to think about that on the one hand, yes, it gets overshadowed. The the leaders of the Zionist movement for decades don't come out of the first Aliyah. It's sidelined, it's denigrated, it's ridiculed. At the same time, it's the first Aliyah. It gets that designation as first. Um, It is celebrated within national narratives. Um, And I think that's because those settlers, um, in being uh, the first to engage specifically in rural settlement, right, so not the establishment of new urban neighborhoods, which had been occurring for several decades beforehand in Jaffa and Jerusalem, but rural settlers they had experiences that would become typical or even emblematic of Zionist settlement moving forward. And these are also features that we might note are also typical of narratives of settler societies elsewhere. And I think we'll probably get to that part of the conversation. So these were uh, individuals who right acquired land, settled it, engaged in our agriculture, experienced agricultural failure, um, dealt with harsh weather, dealt with sickness and death, dealt with people leaving, dealt with resistance from rural native populations, so Palestinian native populations who they regarded as hostile, as non-modern, as degenerate, as irrational. And so these impressions that became part or a central part of the first Aliyah story later also in their own ways became emblematic of Zionist settlement more generally. And we can identify some of those features in a more macro sense within Israeli discourse, even to this day, right? This sense of undertaking a project, sacrificing for that project, experiencing right, violence, pushback and resistance from outsiders, but nonetheless persisting. Okay. So that's a very, kind of broadly stated or schematic way of thinking about it. But because these individuals, as few as they were, were having these experiences, talking about these experiences that would then become shared by others, they became the markers, right? The markers of the beginning of what became a much broader story of of Zionist settlement.
0: Right. I think that part of what you're getting at here is that the first aliyah becomes, on the one hand, a, a point of contrast for later Zionists and, and, and Jewish settlers in, in the land of Israel, but also something that people came to identify with in a certain sense at the same time. That's right. And I guess part of the question here is that in this mode of kind of playing both roles at the same time, what then is the function of the first Aliyah in the historical memory of the Zionist movement, uh, Jewish settlers and Jewish settlements in Palestine later on in Israel? that's the really the center point of your book as a whole, right? We started out by talking about Abraham Shapira, right? Who is around for such a long time that he becomes this kind of symbol, right? I, I'm struck also by the cover of your book, which is this phenomenal image of Shapira on a horse, you know, riding around town surrounded by automobiles. Uh, and so there's a whole story here about the image of the first Dalia, how it survives through a figure like Shapira, but much more broadly, I think that what you've put your finger on here is the way in which this entire era came to hold a place in historical memory.
1: Yeah, I think that that's right. So I, for the reasons that I mentioned, right, in symbolizing aspects of the settlement experience that would persist later, but also part of the function of the first or even this rhetoric of firstness more generally, is to establish and declare a break with the past. Um, and that's something that I also focus on quite a bit. So what happens to the populations of Palestine that predated the first Aliyah within this paradigm of the first Aliyah and subsequent Aliyot? And we should note that that population was overwhelmingly rural Arab Muslim, but also included a variety of urban centers, which had significant Jewish populations. And I mentioned some of those earlier as the destinations to which actually most Jewish immigrants were going. So what was the role of those individuals within the story? And part of what I argue is that both the commemoration of firstness and also these internal debates among Jews about just who was first and what is firstness also functions to obscure and push to the side The story of those who were there previously, who end up coming or popping up into the narrative in various ways when they have utility for the story um, and then fading or subsiding into the background when they're no longer relevant. And this is something that I note in, in some of the narrative structure of stories themselves, where you have native Arabs or even native Jews serving roles as interpreters, as guides, as aggressors, as helpers, and then seemingly fading into the background into what presents itself as a barren landscape and right onto which this new settlement can occur. Um, and so I think that that process of both existing in relationship to that existing past, but also establishing a break from that past, including the, the Jewish past of Palestine, including that urban religious past from which some of the settlers themselves came, is part of the function of, of this um, aliyah discourse in general, but the first aliyah in particular, because it marks this bridge, but also this divide that on some level, these folks shared features with the quote unquote, pre-Zionist um, Jewish communities. And in other ways, they distinguish themselves, or at least this is how the commemoration works. They distinguish themselves by engaging in agriculture, by by moving towards self-sufficiency, um, various things that would become the features of the Zionist movement as as its leaders understood it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think part of what you are thinking about here is the way in which various groups of of Zionists wanted to differentiate themselves from what came before, whether it's to differentiate one formation or one form of the Zionist movement from earlier Zionist groups, the Zionist organization versus Hibat right? For instance, you know, Leon Pinsker's group, you know, based out of Odessa, you know, in Ukraine, or the contrast between the Jewish settlers and the groups of Jews who were already in Ottoman Palestine, you know, and also, as you mentioned, the local population you know, the that was also there as well. Um, and I think that part of what's important here is thinking about the rhetoric of firstness. Again, it's not just about old versus new, but it's also about what it means to be first. Uh, so what does the prominence of this rhetoric of being first tell us about Zionism and Israel at large, especially in the context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and claims over who was there first?
1: The anxieties about firstness emerge precisely in a setting where none of the people claiming to be first have any claim to in fact be first and they know it right so they're they're aware that firstness is not in fact an origin but it's a break from something that came before and therefore articulating who represents that break is articulating who represents this new society in the making so firstness is also a claim to civilization to modernity to putting Jews or the Jewish people on a new historical course, but it's always beset by this awareness, right? It's not just an awareness, it's just patently obvious to everyone that this project is establishing itself in an environment that is characterized by other cultural, social, political, religious formations, which are threatening to encroach, which are threatening to undermine the project. And those kinds of threats occur in different ways. And so as we look forward to the evolution and development of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or just the growth of Zionism and Palestinian resistance, it's really characterized by the fact of Palestinians, right? A term that really comes to mark Palestinian Arabs and not Jews. And the fact that they persist, right, they exist and they persist. Um, and not only are they there, but they actually have a role in helping and supporting the Jewish economy that emerges. And this is not only true in the agricultural colonies, like my colleague Nimrod Benzeev writes about Palestinian construction workers uh, into and past 1948, right, who in, in many ways physically built the the built infrastructure of Israel and Zionism. And so there's this awareness that they persist, but there's also an awareness that the Jewish history of the land persists in ways that are, that are not entirely comfortable, right? The narrative of Jewish continuity back to ancient times is a really important feature of the Zionist claim. But if you look at the actual rhetoric of those commemorating settlement They see those Jewish communities as degenerate, as backwards, as representatives of a past that needed to be left behind or as people who as individuals could be recruited into this new process and transformed, right? To be transformed through the process of settlement. So this firstness is, it's, it's about a lot of things. And you can, you can understand a lot about both the goals and self-perception of different Zionist groups, but also these fears and anxieties about the instability or the contingency of the very uh, project.
0: It's a very interesting parallel that can be made, right? Between the ways in which the Zionist movement and Zionist leaders looked at the first Aliyah and tried to to draw a certain sense of authenticity, quote unquote, from that, uh, but also to differentiate themselves from that in the same way that they looked at earlier groups of Jews who were in the land of Israel. On the one hand, the Zionist movement and Zionist leaders wanted to emphasize that Jews had always been in the land of Israel in one capacity or another, but they also wanted their project to be new and different in some way. Right. So I guess part of the question here then is what is the story of the historical memory of the first Aliyah tell us more broadly about the workings of historical memory as a whole and in the context of nationalism, where historical memory has such an important part to play in the shaping of national ideas?
1: I think um, one part of that answer is that we need to think about historical memory beyond and below the level of the nation itself. So there's been Uh, Some of the most important work on Zionist historical memory that I I drew from, from Yael Zrubavel and Nuri Gertz um, from the 90s, uh, deals with the features of Zionist collective memory as a whole, um, which is incredibly important. Zrubavel talks about a master commemorative narrative with certain features. But what my work does is to understand how particular subgroups within a society are. Articulating both their role within that broader memory, but also expressing a sense of opposition or even externality to that um, national discourse. Um, and in the case of the first Aliyah colonies that I, that, that I look at, you have them trying to differentiate themselves in a couple of, of different ways. They're establishing themselves as exemplars of, of private initiative. Right, private ownership. They're establishing themselves as exemplars of what I call hierarchical coexistence that is facing a dominant Zionist desire or tendency to separate fully from the Palestinian uh, Arab populations. You have the first Aliyah uh, commemorators thinking about or articulating or voicing narratives of coexistence that is getting along well with hired workers, with um, local communities. And so those things are particular to this case, but they point to the way that um, sub-communities within a national group are articulating um, an oppositional kind of memory structure, that a group of people can be both central and peripheral to a national story, and that we can see the features of their national memory emerge at the local level. So another piece of this that I think is important is the work on, on local history and local archives are an important part of this project. Not only the documents contained within those archives, which uh, I particularly looked at the planning notes for some of these commemorative events, but also the very institutional structures that are created to engage in commemoration. So the archives themselves, like the buildings, the collections that I'm using to tell a story, were part of the process of people in the past trying to tell a story about their own past. So I'm looking at people... Looking at other people, so there's this two-level aspect to the study of, of historical memory that sometimes makes it very hard to describe the project, right? Because there's two pasts that I'm studying. I'm studying the past in which people are thinking about commemoration, and then I'm thinking about the past even further back that they themselves are thinking about. And so this kind of gradation or or layeredness of 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 memory and also writing about memory is is something that would be shared across different research topics on historical memory.
0: Yeah. I mean I think that you've highlighted some really interesting components here of how we can think about memory in different ways, right? You know, you contrasted your work, which is very local and very focused on on the kind of internal subgroups within the Zionist movement and the Jewish settlements in Palestine with earlier work, which is focused on the kind of the grander scale, right? You know, how the Zionist uh, leaders and, and the Zionist movement, you know, frames historical memory around sites like Masada as a kind of a master narrative. You're looking at it kind of more closely at the specific topics. What is one way in which the first Aliyah was commemorated that was particularly interesting uh, and that illustrates this, this issue of local memory?
1: One thing I'll say just in in connection with the Masada, whereas perhaps Zionist historical memory looks to ancient heroes um, and war casualties or casualties of violence as these heroic moments, I found that in these local commemorations, living, breathing, elderly people become these markers, right? They physically are paraded or parade themselves As part of these celebrations. So there's something tangible, vital about these local commemorations that you don't see in these big picture kind of macro national narratives connecting the present to the ancient past. With that aside, two stories. So one of the stories, which is actually multiple stories, is the story of Avraham Shapira ending up in this role of marching in the Tel Aviv Purim parade every year. And this seems to have begun in the 30s, and then there was a break during World War II, and then it happens again in the 50s, several times uh, before Shapira's death. And so the horse marches in the parade. He usually has other riders with him who are also... Uh from the first Elia colonies, right younger men, uh he has his iconic sword, he has his riding boots, he has his walking stick, he has its, his pipe. not all these things necessarily were in the parade, but he had these certain accoutrements right that symbolized his role as a guard, his connection with the Bedouin neighbors, and he would march in the parade, and the coverage of the parade indicated both the way in which this memory had been depoliticized, but also the way in which it remains still political. So you have coverage of these parades noting that, uh, you know, Shapira and his riders are a throwback to this, this nostalgic past that people of all backgrounds are flocking to the city to see. But then you also have examples of Shapira and his, his riders coming to represent this reactionary private ownership that labor Zionists are trying to attack. So there were moments in the thirties where Shapira himself was attacked or cursed at by labor Zionists for, um, you know, representing owners who were at the heart of a series of disputes with Jewish workers who were trying to gain employment or improve their employment conditions. So you have him both, Operating as this physical living symbol of nostalgia, but also at other moments, that shared collective memory getting broken by the politics, the internal Zionist politics of what he represents or who, who he represents. The other story with Shapir is the one that I begin the book with that, that I really love is the story of the brandy bottle from 1960, which I can say readers don't know this from from this, but I actually discovered this brandy bottle really late in the process of researching uh, for the book. Like it wasn't something that started my book in any, including the first draft that I sent to the publisher. It came in much later. And what it is, is it's a a bottle of brandy produced by a a winery in uh, Petr Tikva in 1960 in honor of Avraham Shapira's 90th birthday. So he turned 90 in 1960, and this winery put out this bottle of brandy they called the old patron's brandy. And it had Shapira's picture on the front and his picture on the back. And the language on the label is so interesting because it explicitly says that partaking of these spirits will bring you back to the, the founding days of the mother colony. And that on the English language version of the label, it says specifically mother colony, Emma Moshevot, which was a term that until today is still used. It's still on signage. If you go to Petah Tikva, you'll see this mother of the colonies language. So in a way the parade with Shapira being right displayed to the masses the second example is Shapira or this nostalgic past being literally marketed to the masses. So this is a product that a person would purchase. It's a luxury product. It's not something that people are going to be able to purchase every day. So it, it signals a certain kind of aesthetics, a certain kind of middle class uh, existence. But with the branding, it's connecting uh, 1960s middle class consumption uh, existence to a much more distant history of the communities that came to symbolize right the owner class entrepreneurship, private initiative within the story of of Zionism in Israel.
0: I mean, I love this um, on so many levels. part of it, as you just mentioned, is you know these two stories that you just told, one of them is about the public, right the public display of Shapira and his writers, and the other one is about private consumption and capitalism, right? So there's there's a lot to think about there. Can you maybe say a bit about the relationship between the historical memory of the first settlements, the first Jewish settlements of the 1880s and then the expulsion of the Palestinians in 1948?
1: As I noted, one of the features of these private colonies both in their own memory and in the memory of those who would criticize and condemn them was the fact that they hired uh, Palestinian rural workers, um, usually from villages in the immediate proximity of the Jewish colony um, or Mosheva. And so as you get into the 1920s and 30s and, and also beyond a big piece of the commemorative rhetoric, typical of these colonies is the claim that we got along well with with Arabs, right? That would be the words that they use. They would say we got along well with Arabs and it got screwed up by you later Zionists who wanted to separate, who fired them from, from jobs. And so this rhetoric of both coexisting peacefully with hired Arab workers or, or local peasants uh, from surrounding villages, um, but also showing Jewish strength against those same populations. So getting along well, but also putting them in their place, right? Being willing to use violence or force when necessary in order to reconstitute or ensure peaceful relations. Both of these things are features of what I call a hierarchical coexistence. So Palestinians before 1948 were in some cases displaced through Jewish land purchases and some of the early pushback and resistance against these colonies came from those who had been growing crops or grazing their animals and were no longer allowed to do so. Right. But the really massive displacement of Palestinians occurs in 1948 in the context of the war and results in the displacement of um, more than 700,000 Palestinians who, some of whom are displaced internally within Israel, and some of whom end up as refugees in neighboring states or elsewhere in the world. And so post-48 period, some of these commemorative themes or or tropes from um, earlier end up getting modified in this totally new landscape and totally new demographic reality in which Jews have become the majority, they have created A demographic majority through this displacement and also preventing the return of of Palestinians. And they now are, there's a sovereign state of which they are the dominant population. And so what do they do? And they do a few different things in in memory, which are really quite self contradictory, which represent a lot of cognitive dissonance and um, shift, right, back and forth. So you find after 48. A few different themes. One is the memory of hierarchical coexistence. Not only we got along well, we were the ones who got along well, we had no problems, right, with our Arabs, but also uh, continuing to argue that they represent or were working towards peaceful relations with the remaining Palestinian populations, because remember, 150,000 Palestinians remain within Israel and become citizens Um, and those citizens who are under a military government until 1966, some of them end up working in Jewish communities, including some of these early established colonies. So, right, not only did we get along well then, but look, we hire workers from this village and we have an obligation to make peace with them. Shapira, among many other things, chairs the committee of the uh, sulha or mediated reconciliation process after the Kafaru Qasim massacre of 1956. And that's a whole episode that we probably don't have time to talk about. And I speculate about why this figure associated with the nostalgic early settler past. Becomes the figurehead to represent what the state intends to be a reestablishment of peaceful relations between the state and its new Palestinian minority. So this is the hierarchical coexistence piece. A second piece of it is narrating the past and also the present as a story of violence, right of Jewish settlers establishing communities and agriculture, but facing the hostility of of locals and fighting back against it. So that narrative is, well, we always got along badly, they were always hostile, they, you know, they tried to fight against the civilization we were bringing, and they remain a threat, right? And we, or our fathers or mothers who were there then can, you know, they can tell you about, you know, how it has been. And so that kind of rhetoric from folks who could claim to have been in Palestine since the beginnings of this process, was or could be used as a rationale for, you know, a vigorous use of force or use of violence or trying to put down um, resistance of various kinds. So it could point towards support of methods and policies that we would associate with the Israeli right wing, right? Even if the coexistence discourse maybe in our minds, we think, well, that's a left wing thing to talk about coexistence. i arguing that these these various Rationales or rationalizations are actually all consistent with this particular form of Israeli centrist or right wing discourse. And then finally, the third piece that I observe, particularly after 1948, is simply processes of erasure, right? The very people who had been and in some cases were still celebrating coexistence were simply operating as though those people never existed at all, including by commemorating some of these old guard figures with the establishment of new sites and new Jewish communities, literally on the ruins of Palestinian villages, and at the ceremonies dedicating them, not even mentioning the fact that these sites were the sites of Palestinian villages, the same villages that might have sent workers to work in these agricultural colonies, right? So all of these things are part of the story. They don't exist comfortably with each other, but they represent these different formations of of memory that persisted or in some cases emerged after 1948.
0: You've highlighted something really important here, right, which is that the history of settlement, of Jewish settlement in Ottoman Palestine, you know, also, you know, British, you know, later the state of Israel is all kind of connected together with the question of the fate of Palestinian settlements, towns, villages, and cities. And that the creation of these new Jewish settlements post-1948 is literally, as you mentioned, on the ruins of the settlements that, at least theoretically, these first Jewish settlements of the 80s, the 1880s, tried, or perhaps maybe successfully, maybe not in different cases, to live in coexistence with uh, in various ways. Part of what this brings us to is the question of the construction of settlements both in the 1950s and 60s. And beyond. Obviously, a figure like Avram Shapira dies in 1965. So he never lives to see the Six-Day War and its aftermath. And of course, just as we move forward chronologically, the people who were alive at that time in general, you know, they they are passing away. Just the, you know, sort of the normal passing of time. So part of what also happens is that the historical memory of the first Aliyah becomes even more kind of unmoored from the actual historical events themselves because the people are no longer there. It's no longer within living memory, right? Within this context, can you maybe share with us some thoughts about the function of the historical memory of these first Aliyah settlements uh, in terms of the post-1967 debates over the settlement of the West Bank and other areas that come under Israeli control uh, in the Six-Day War?
1: The, the realizations I had after spending years working on this project was just the absolute continuity of settlement as a theme and practice of Zionism. And even though today many people use the word settlers only to refer to those who settled in the territories occupied in 1967, the the folks who did so were using the same language of settlement, Ityashwut and other words from that same root uh, that were being used in the 50s and the 60s and the 30s and the 20s and the teens. And so this sense that, oh, there was just this established community and then this new settlement happened belies these lines of historical continuity. And I quote Baruch Kimmerling, who notes, and I'm just paraphrasing here, that some of the, right, the, the tropes and discourses of a, a dormant right, settler um, awareness get revived after 1967. Now, I don't even think they were totally dormant in the 50s and 60s as Israel was trying to establish new settlements in the Negev and the Galilee, but they certainly were revived in a new way with some of the same discourses emerging about, right, those willing to go out into hostile landscapes, Jews living surrounded by Palestinian villages which was something that Jews living in the center piece of Israel, where the vast majority of Palestinians were were uh, displaced from, hadn't experienced, right? If you live in central Israel, you're not living surrounded by Palestinian villages. That's different in the Galilee. But for those who moved from central Israel, Israel's population center, into the West Bank, or, or Gaza, for that matter, right, they found themselves in a situation that resembled that of earlier settlers, that is a like a settlement point surrounded by villages. As those settlements grew, they often would hire laborers from those surrounding villages. So some of these patterns that I identified as as typical or iconic of these first elya moshavot or colonies end up being recreated in a new political context. Of course, the political environment in which it's happening is is different because we're dealing with a a sovereign state with citizens settling within a territory where the villagers are not citizens. That's a kind of a different story than both the Ottoman period and the mandate period. And yet discursively or in terms of memory or self-conception, you start to see a lot of these patterns get recreated. Another thing that's true of many or most of these Jewish settlers is that they're not associated with the political left, right? They're not labor Zionists. And there are some exceptions to that, but, right the labor Zionist position comes to be a support for some form of territorial partition or separation most of those moving into the occupied territories are either on the far right or center right or or centrist there's certainly some some centrists who might think of themselves or be thought of as non non ideological and so in a new way we're we're looking at now and for the past multiple decades populations of individuals not associated with the Zionist left, talking in terms of hierarchical coexistence with neighbors or with hired employees, right? Those who see Jewish territorial expansion as still an important plank of the Zionist movement. And as we see these phenomena today, or in the more recent past, we have to remember that these themes are not new. Right. They don't represent a break with an early past that was simply characterized by labor Zionism and the drive for for population separation. Right. There's also this other story, which is both an earlier story and an ongoing story of communities outside labor Zionism, communities hiring Arab workers, communities talking about coexistence through economic relationships, right, economic peace, as it's sometimes called rather than separation. And I think it's certainly a moment where revisiting the longer lineage of these trends um, makes a lot of sense, right? Not, not only to see continuities, but also to see how this story of center-right or right-wing politics, capitalism, private initiative, private ownership um, is a story that actually carries us through the, 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 the entire history of, of the Zionist movement.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking, just as you were speaking about SodaStream, and about some of these other Israeli companies that have hired Palestinian workers. And of course, Palestinians play an important role in many facets of the Israeli economy, you know, particularly in areas like construction. What is the impact here? What is the importance of this notion of hierarchical coexistence in terms of understanding ongoing relations between Israeli Jews and Palestinians? Uh, both Israeli-Palestinians as well as uh, Palestinians in the West Bank and elsewhere?
1: Yeah, it's an important question that I only begin to address in the book. It certainly remains for other scholars to to do that work and think about what that kind of discourse is doing. But hierarchical coexistence is a what I call a discourse on the part of the employer class or the dominant class within a society. It's not a a description of of reality, so to speak, right? The workers would not use that language, right? It's not in fact coexistence in many cases from the perception of the workers themselves. Um, so it's it's a discourse or a kind of a way of speaking about relationships between a dominant group of people, including an employer class, and workers from a non-dominant um in this case, subjugated um, group of people saying, look, we get along fine. And we get along fine because we connect to each other outside of politics. And this is related to a tendency, which I note in the conclusion, but again, not the focus of my work, to think about economic relations as existing outside of politics, right? That politics is government, politics is partisanship, politics is violence, right? Uh, Against one another, but economic relations: I hire you, you work for me, you make a living uh, thanks to our connection. Is is outside of politics, and with politics being denigrated as like a bad thing, or you know why you bringing politics into the story? Hierarchical coexistence um, becomes a mechanism. For those invested in holding on to territory, right, of there being one state from the river to the sea with Jews in a dominant position to not only justify it, but to say, look, not only is it working for us, it's also working for everyone. Right. And separation would only create more violence. And whether or not one agrees with that argument, it's become a very dominant argument in Israeli politics, really from the center all the way to the right, as the prospect of any kind of territorial separation becomes more distant and these these relationships seem to not be going anywhere. You see them also in some of the more um, transnational politics, right, economic peace between countries, right? If we... You know, if Israel can be in an economic relationship with this or that country, that peace is more meaningful than any kind of um, treaty that requires dividing land. And this connects to the Abraham Accords and some of the much more recent developments in Israeli politics. So, again, these all these directions are all a bit far afield from what really the heart of my book is about. But it raises some of these broader questions that I hope other scholars will will pick up and, and run with.
0: Yeah. So there's another issue that I want to talk about here, which is settler colonialism. But before we get to that, um, I want to dwell on this for just one more moment, because I think that this issue of hierarchical coexistence is incredibly important, because I think that you've identified ways in which some of the the contemporary discourse uh, relating to questions of questions of coexistence, both between uh, Israel and the Palestinians, as well as between Israel and other countries in the region, has its roots in the first Aliyah. In a certain sense and in a couple of really important ways among them the way in which this is a very bourgeois you know or capitalist way of looking at things right uh in as much as kind of saying that business is not political as it were thinking about how understanding the deeper history of this notion of hierarchical coexistence which as you indicated like is a nod towards coexistence but under the status quo right you know how understanding the history of this can help us to better understand the contemporary uh, issues, uh, especially in light of the tension between the status quo and the possibility of separation separating societies and economies on the one hand and also more specifically separating land, um, you know which maybe twenty five years ago looked like it was going to happen you know maybe today you know the outlook is a little bit different, but it's still the same question, right you know what does coexistence look like? what is the hierarchy under what under which it will exist
1: i think it's very important to understand the through lines historically um especially right if one misunderstands the past one sees breaks right or newness or transformation where in fact it doesn't exist right so when folks say oh well the labor zionists were in control and then in 1977 likud won and since then has been overwhelmingly dominant." right, disregards the fact that you also have stories of the political center and right before, not in power, but competing and, and issuing their own historical uh, memory and, and, and discourse. The other piece is, you know, you can see the the tendency of owners of capital to just naturally seek out the labor that's the cheapest. And that's just something that any owner does axiomatically. That makes good business sense to do that um, and creates what, in their view, is a kind of natural hierarchy. And this is something I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in contemporary conservative thought, but one of the features that I understand of conservative thought more generally is just a sense that the world is structured in terms of hierarchies, whether they're ethnic hierarchies or gender hierarchies or hierarchies between parts of the world, that these kind of relationships of, of dominance and submission are the natural way of the world. It's the way the world falls into place without people coming in and trying to disrupt the system. And for that reason they're good and they're a source of stability. Right? And so this is what you start to see is people saying, "Hey, inequality or difference or hierarchy is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a natural thing and it's it's good for all parties involved." And I think there's something really seductive about that thinking and it's not surprising especially those for whom the status quo works to move into that kind of thinking, because not, o- not only does it justify the status quo persisting, but it also elevates it as a kind of value, right? It says, who are you guys saying that things need to change? This kind of hierarchy, this kind of social structure is necessary. There's no other way. It actually works well for everyone. So now now we're getting into some of the, the really big picture, like, like, Epistemological debates, like what is the natural way of the world, right? What is the best way for for society to operate? And I think when we start to look at these kinds of cases, we 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 open up into these these much broader um, political conversations.
0: In the last few minutes that we have, um, I wanted to focus a little bit on terminology. I think that it might seem pedantic to talk about terms, right? But I think that it's very interesting uh, to think about these first settlements and the way in which they were described by the people who lived there as a way of helping us to understand the dynamics of Jewish settlement in uh, in Palestine and in Israel, inasmuch as the first settlements uh, were termed as colonies, uh, or in Hebrew as Moshevot, right? So what does that mean, and how does it help us to understand, broadly speaking, the dynamics of settler colonialism? To look at this early period of settlement, you know, I was particularly drawn, you know, as I think it's come out in our conversation to your thinking on hierarchical coexistence, right? So it seems that, that there's a lot to think about here. And I don't know if we really have the time to give it the attention that it really deserves, but I think that there's a lot to think about about the specific terms that people used at the time, colonies, uh, and the function of these settlements in terms of historical memory as a way to better frame the historical reality of settler colonialism uh, in Israel and Palestine.
1: Yeah, and this is a huge topic that deserves yeah probably more time than we have um in part because it is such a politically contentious topic like it's it's risen to the level of critical race theory as a buzzword right that you know is out in the popular polemical discourse among people who who don't work in this field at all and so in some sense trying to dwell on what that framework does or doesn't do is 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 really important but as you say the word colonies And the word colonization and the word settlement are absolutely central to the self-conception of these early settlers. And even those who in the second Aliyah who say, we don't like these colonists and we're not gonna use the word colonies are still using the word settlement. And the word settlement is from the same root, right? It's not like really semantically um, that different, right? They're still thinking about settlement and they're still thinking about colonization. And really until the mid to late 20th century, colonization was a positive term, right? Colonization was a process of people making connections to the land by cultivating it. It was something that modern people did within a landscape that was uncultivated or degenerate. It was something that represented the struggle of civilization against various forces against it who needed to be fought against or subdued or or co-opted in some way. Um, And so the fact that in the late 20th century, you start to see a real pushback, right, in the form of anti-colonial movements to say, hey, this colony or colonization concept wasn't so great for all of us, has really turned the whole discourse on its head and has led the descendants of the same people who said, Yes, of course we're colonizing, and we're proud of it. And here's what we have accomplished: to saying, "What? Why are you? Why are you slandering Zionism by calling it uh, colonial? Of course it's not colonial. How dare you suggest that? Um, and I think it just speaks to the way that a word transforms in such a significant way over time. Um, and there's probably a, a whole longer discussion to have about what that what that means in our contemporary discourse, but. I was not especially aware of the field of settler colonial studies when I began this project. It was not part of my um, training in Jewish history that uh, you, Jason, also had. And it was something that I discovered, well, certainly I I was aware of it as a, a paradigm that was being used in the Palestine studies field, but I really discovered it as I was trying to figure out who else had done work on historical memory about settlement, like I was doing what we all do, doing our keyword searches and databases of of articles and looking for, you know, memory, settlement, settlers, etc. And of course, the things I found were articles and books about places that scholars have called settler colonial. Um, some of them are Anglo-Americans, some of them are French. Um but they they share the feature of having been established by a group of people who thought of themselves as modern, coming to a place they considered degenerate, but ultimately authentically theirs. They were coming to transform for the benefit of themselves or people like themselves or a community that they hope to build. right? So even though the actual details really diverge greatly from case to case, or every case has its own particular features, um, and certainly the... Palestine Israel case has some really unique features these basic features these schematic features of remembering settlement as a process of coming to a place establishing a foothold and fighting against forces that might undo it are shared between these cases and so it's not only a matter of saying well hey these people use this term and we're proud of it but it's an analytical it's analytically useful to recognize that these features of the story, which are, of course, not its only features, are helpful to think about in a comparative perspective, because some of the theory that helps us think about, for example, what I call hierarchical coexistence, or the erasures, or the celebration coupled with the erasures, are things that are not novel to this case. They've been observed by scholars looking at settler societies in other context, some of which I should note are societies that are also celebrated as bastions of democracy and, you know, etc. So um, so societies called settler colonial are, are some, in fact, the most celebrated societies in the world. But they're also societies that are in some cases being examined anew using some of these new lenses. So I think there's both an internal conversation to have about the use of the term by Zionists and how that's changed as the term has taken on new meanings, and also a conversation about what can comparison do for us or not do for us as we're looking specifically at discourse about settlement per se, um, as opposed to the many other aspects of the Zionist story, like language revival, To pick an example I've worked on that was less focused specifically on the mechanisms and history of settlement.
0: Yeah, it goes back to questions of historical memory. Right, you've talked quite a bit about the celebratory commemorations of the First Aliyah, for instance. But it's also a question of how the early settlements have been remembered as colonial or not colonial, right? And you and you just indicated, I think, very uh, astutely, the way in which that historical memory is tremendously malleable. Because if in the past people perhaps used the term colony a neutral way, right, or perhaps even seeing it, as you mentioned, as a good thing, right, conquering the forces of nature, as it has become a more problematic term, especially, you know, in light of decolonization and and everything really in the past, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, I think that many Zionists and, and many Israeli Jews are less willing to use the word colony to talk about this historical memory, even though the term itself was what was used, and actually what is still used, you know, the term of a moshavah still a very commonly used term to talk about many of these settlements.
1: That's right. It really speaks to how words change and how discourses adapt themselves to to match the changing meanings of words over time. In a way, like if somebody's asking, is Zionism colonial? Really, the question is, well, is colonial good or is colonial bad? If colonial is bad, then no. If colonial is good, then yes when you look internally within the, the discourse, right, I'm letting my historical actors speak in their own words, right? And for them, the process of settlement was very clearly good. Um, and so they're celebrating it. Um, and if we today, perhaps, or some people today look at that as a negative, then that that reflects developments that have happened since then. But the, the words and self-perception of the historical actors still stands, right? We can understand their own worldview, even if perhaps uh, some of us might Might evaluate their history or that history differently.
0: Yeah, well, there's obviously so much more for us to talk about, but I think that we're sadly out of time. I feel like I end most of these podcasts and most of these conversations, you know, by saying that I wish we had more time, and that in many ways I hope that our conversation will spark other conversations, you know, both between us and also among listeners as well. Thank you, Leora, so much for you know for taking the time to chat with me about your book and about the important reasons why all of these issues matter. Uh, and thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Jason.
0: And thanks to you for listening to this episode with Lior Halperin. As a reminder, I've posted a link to an excerpt in the show notes, and I hope you'll check it out until next time. I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish history matters.